This morning's scripture from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the people of, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. The word of God, let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this beautiful story the first chapter of Luke, as we turn our hearts and minds toward the birth of our Savior, Father, let us begin by looking at the birth of his forerunner, John the Baptist. And Father, we just pray, Lord, that your Spirit would guide our hearts and minds and he would enable us to be able to understand more clearly what your, what your word has for us this morning, Father. And through that, may you be glorified. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, as is usually my custom, during this month of December, we're going to take a break from whatever we're normally on. This time it happens to be 1 Corinthians, and we are going to be looking at the events surrounding the birth of Christ. Um, we're starting this morning, we're looking at John the Baptizer, and we will probably look at, continue to look at John a little bit next week and begin on Jesus and then follow up um, on Christmas morning, and if you haven't figured that out yet... Christmas morning is on Sunday, so we'll follow that up on Christmas morning with the actual birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the story is told by Luke. So other than Jesus, 
There's probably no one else in the New Testament that was prophesied more about in the Old Testament than John the Baptizer. And I say that for a reason, because everybody wants to call him John the Baptist. There wasn't a Baptist back then, all right? He was a baptizer. That's what he did. So that's why I refer to him as John the Baptizer. So we see some of, I think Kelly read this this morning. Wasn't this what you read, Kelly? So we see some of the Old Testament prophecies from Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now you read this, and you look in the Old Testament, and he's like, yeah, how does this point to John the baptizer? Well, we know that because in Matthew chapter 3, this specific passage is cited as prophecy of John the baptizer. And John himself referred to, or referred to himself as the voice crying out in the wilderness in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 20. So the interesting thing about this is this was actually written and prophesied about 700 years prior to John's birth. So we're going to jump forward in time some 300 years and we're going to come to Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So here is another prophecy of John the baptizer, leading the way or preparing the way. And we know that, in fact, it is prophecy of John the baptizer because we see this passage quoted in Matthew 11 by Jesus talking about John. This prophecy was made 430 years prior to the birth of John. So it's really quite remarkable. So from the close of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew, we have over 400 years. 400 years where God was silent. Nothing. No miracles. No new prophecies. It was just as if God had left or never even existed. But nonetheless, there were people that maintained their faithfulness. There were those who held on and clung on to the promises from the Old Testament. And they were looking forward to a time when they would be able to celebrate yet again. Many generations passed without having anything new from God or hearing anything new from God. Yet they clung to that hope. But those who really knew the Old Testament weren't necessarily looking for the Savior or the Messiah. And why was that? Because they knew that someone else was to come first. And they knew that they had to see someone else, this precursor, before they would find or get to see the Messiah. That the Messiah would not appear until this messenger came. 
And so there are many more prophecies than these. I just picked these two out and, and threw them up there because they are the most popular. And with that, we're going to pick it up in Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So, the time was during the reign of King Herod, Herod the Great, as we know, and he had constructed a most glorious temple. It was beautiful and unsurpassed in the glory that it um, set forth to all those who laid their eyes upon it. Now, Zechariah was a priest, as it, it says here, and it also says that he was of the division of Abijah. So we're like, what, what is that? How does that play out? Now, we know that all priests came from the line of who? Who? Levi, right? They were all Levites. So we, we get to from the line of Levi, and that's where we get the Levitical priesthood. But then we got a little bit more specific, and God bestowed the priesthood on Moses' brother. Who was that brother? Aaron. So Moses' brother Aaron then was bestowed the priesthood. And the other Levites kind of took on more inferior roles as to those who came through Aaron. One of Aaron's sons was named Eleazar, and he had another son named Ithamar. And together, those two had 24 sons. So we had Aaron, Eleazar, Ithamar. Eleazar and Ithamar had 24 sons. And so then David made divisions in this priesthood based on those 24 sons. And so there were 24 divisions of priests based on who their dad or granddad was at that time. Abijah, as we see here, was Eleazar's eighth son. So this is how Zechariah was of the division of Abijah. He was related directly to Aaron as well as Eleazar. And we see that how it comes about here. Now at this time, there's a whole lot of priests in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, there's 18,000, give or take a few, priests in Jerusalem at this time. That's a whole lot of priests. Busy group of folks. A priest would serve in the temple and make sacrifices for two weeks throughout the year. They only got to do this for two weeks. You had the 24 divisions, all right? So if you take 18,000 and you break down 24 divisions, you're looking at roughly 750 priests when it came time for that division to serve the temple. They were never consecutive weeks. They were broken up, so they would call one division one week, another division the next week. This all started with David because David didn't want there to be one group who claimed more power than the other or think they were more important than the other. So they, they delegated it among all of the priests. During times when they weren't in the temple, serving the temple, anyone care to guess what their occupation on the outside was? They were butchers. Butchers. Makes sense, right? 
They flat out knew how to cut up a lamb. They butchered everything, but that's what they did whenever they weren't serving in the temple. The priests would slaughter as many as a quarter of a million animals during Passover. That's a lot of dead animals, right? That's a mess. But it gives you some idea on how many people descended on Jerusalem and all the duties the priests had at the time of making those sacrifices. So they stayed busy. And so we see that Luke's describing Zechariah. We know that he comes directly from Aaron through Aaron's son and through Abijah. And so that kind of sets him up as his priest. But he also had a wife. His wife is Elizabeth. He also refers to her as a daughter of Aaron. So we got a cousin in there somehow, somewhere down the line. We don't really know how it comes through, but she is a cousin, obviously, of Zechariah. Now why, why would Luke go to the length of giving us her lineage as well? Women couldn't be priests. I mean, she was forbidden from being in the priesthood. But I think, or I believe, that Luke includes this to demonstrate to us that they both, both Elizabeth as well as Zechariah, came from families who were absolutely dedicated to serving God. And we see that on both sides. Zechariah as well as Elizabeth. Both families have been devoted to the service of God. Verse 6. And they were both righteous, justified before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So Luke tells us that they were righteous people. What, what does that mean? Does it mean that they didn't sin? No. We know that can't be the case, right? We, we know that's impossible. So, so what's the alternative? I mean, there's only one person one man that ever walked the face of this earth that was sinless, and that was Jesus. So what does it mean that they, walked, that they were righteous and walked blamelessly in all the commandments? It means that they had a heart for God. It means that they believed God, that they fought against their sinfulness. They knew that they couldn't save themselves, that they couldn't be good enough to save themselves. They trusted God to send a Messiah to save them from their own sinfulness. Walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord does not mean that you never violate them. But it means you fight that. You fight the desire to violate them. That you work constantly and tirelessly not to do so. Not with the belief that that's going to save you, but with the belief that God wants us to do that. That's what's good in His sight. It means that we wage war against the flesh. Anytime that it encourages us or moves us in a direction to where we might violate God's law. It means that we beat our flesh into submission, as Paul liked to talk about. 
It means, quite frankly, frankly, that we love God more than we love the sin that ensnares us. It's really kind of that simple. So they were righteous. They walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They were close to God. They served him in every way possible. Verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So it was just Zechariah and Elizabeth, just the two of them. They had no children. Unfortunately, Elizabeth could not conceive. And many women at that time took that on sort of as a badge of shame. They felt like something was wrong with them. And unfortunately, society, and you're going to see this down in verse 25, society actually approved that it was shameful. They kind of looked at them as if something was wrong with them as well. Now, Elizabeth and Zechariah were getting older, and uh, they were likely in their 80s at this time. And quite frankly, they had probably lost all hope of ever having some sort of child. They had just accepted that that was their lot in life, and that's what God was going to ask of them, that they not have a child, and they had come to accept that. As much shame as Elizabeth had from that, she was willing to endure it because that's what God had chosen or the road that God had chosen her to walk. So that gives us the background, and now we kind of get moved into the actual what's going on now. So while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So as I said, there were 24 divisions. Each division served two weeks, not back-to-back weeks, and there were many different duties in the temple. So you had roughly 750 of your fellow priests from the same division of Abijah, and you were serving in the temple together. And there were different roles that everyone had. Well, one of the most important roles was to burn incense on the altar of incense to God. The altar of incense was, and I've got a picture of that altar, you'll see it here in a little bit, but it represented the prayers going up, our prayers going up to God. And it was something that smelled good and would appease God and his sense of of smell and would uh, make him smile upon whoever was making that offering. So Zechariah, as it happened to be, was chosen by the casting of lots that he would be given the opportunity to sacrifice incense on the altar of incense. It it was an extraordinary moment for him. Probably one of the biggest moments in his entire life as a priest. To get to go inside the holy place, not the most holy place. I've got an order here you're going to be able to see hopefully. But it was still the holy place and do something so important as to offer incense to the Lord so that it may be pleasing to God. So he was excited about this, no doubt. And I've got before you, see it a little bit, it's kind of sideways. 
So all of it, the whole square is the courtyard of the entire temple. And we have the altar of sacrifices outside the square over to my far right. And then you, there were doors in the holy place. You went in the holy place. And the altar of incense is the square inside the, of this right blue square. And then the, the table of showbread. I'm not going to get into showbread, but it's really cool if you look up showbread and what that was and look up the taking of communion and what Christ became for us. And there's a candlestick on the left side. So as you go in, go in the temple, the table of showbread's on the left, the candlestick's on the right, altar of incense is right in front of you, and there's a veil. The blue line that separates the two places is the veil, the veil that was torn when Christ was crucified. So that's the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant and the tablets were stored. So that is a, a rough sketch of how the temple was laid out. So we have Zechariah would go in the holy place and um, offer up incense on the altar of incense. And quite frankly, it was a dangerous job to even go into the holy place because you had to make sure that your sins had been confessed, confessed and all the sacrifices had been made or you run the risk of God striking you down whenever you were in the holy place. And here is the altar of incense. It had two long pipes or tubes or whatever that it could be carried and there was a horn at each corner and in the middle was the incense and you see behind it, that is the veil where it is the most holy place or the holy of holies as it's sometimes referred to that was beyond the altar of incense. So hopefully now you have an idea of what that looked like. In verse 10, and the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So basically they would start incense at sunrise and those would burn all day and then they would also have another incense at sunset and while that was being done, people were outside the temple and they were praying. And they prayed that during this time that God would find the incense pleasing to him that Zechariah would be pleasing to God and that God wouldn't strike Zechariah down for anything that he might not have confessed. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So Zechariah's in there, he's making sacrifices of incense, and then out of the blue, there comes an angel. So you know as Zechariah goes in there, he's thinking, have I confessed everything that I got going on here? This is a wonderful moment. At the same time, it's a little scary because I'm in the most holy place and God can strike me down at any moment. And then here comes an angel. What do you think the first thought went through Zechariah's mind? I'm out. I'm done. I'm done. Judgment is coming and God is taking me out of here. So I'm quite certain he was a scared individual whenever this angel appeared to him on the right side of the altar of incense. And we see it here. He was troubled. I think I would have been a little bit more than just troubled, right? Terrified, maybe? But Zechariah was troubled, and fear fell upon him. And, and it's common, you've heard me say it many times, anytime an angel of the Lord actually makes themselves or manifests themselves, to a person, the person is scared. 
The person is terrified because the glory of God is upon that angel. The holiness of God is upon that angel. And it is at that moment that we realize that we're not even close to the holiness of God. We see ourselves for who we truly are. And fear comes upon us. The same way that fear came upon Zechariah. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. So we see here, the angel come, calms him down, says, your prayer has been heard. John, can you switch that next slide because I'm getting an error. 13, there we go. I don't think that Zechariah was praying for a son whenever he was in the altar of incense or in the holy place making that sacrifice i believe the angels jumping way back in time to prayers that they had made perhaps decades earlier that they continued to pray time after time after time the angel tells him not to be afraid and then the angel tells him something miraculous magnificent and amazing that your prayer has been heard and you're going to have a son and you're going to call him John. Think about how long they had prayed for God to give them a son, a child of any kind. Because as I said, this was a badge of shame that Elizabeth wore, not being able to have a child. I'm quite certain they spent many days praying over and over and over asking God to give them a child. Probably to the extent that they had stopped by now. I mean, they're 80 years old, as I said earlier. It's very likely that they weren't praying for that anymore. They had just accepted God's lot and moved on. Verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Verse 15. And he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So why was it that the angel said John shouldn't drink wine or strong drink? It wasn't that anything was inherently wrong with that. It wasn't that it was evil. It was from God. We saw... We see many people throughout the Bible drink wine. The problem was, or it wasn't necessarily a problem, it was just that he wanted to set John apart. He wanted to set John apart as a special forerunner to the Messiah. Not sure which one we're on now, John. Are we on six? And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, verse 17. And he will go before him, being the Savior, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So he's going to be coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. What does exactly that mean? If you remember, Elijah preached repentance to a rebellious generation. That needed, they needed to change, repent, and follow God. 
And that was exactly what John was going to do. John was to prepare the way for the Savior to come. He let the people know of their sinfulness, and he also let the people know that they needed a Savior, that they were doomed without a Savior of their own. Eighteen, please. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. It's one of my favorite passages in the entire New Testament, or at least this area of it. He was very polite to his wife, wasn't he? He knew better to say, I'm old and she's old. Because he knew he would never hear the end of that. So he said, how shall I know this? I'm an old man. She's advanced in years. So, but we see, we see an underlying issue here with Zechariah, right? Go on to the next slide, John. And the angel answered him. So Zechariah is not believing the angel. And here we have the angel now answering Zechariah. I am Gabriel. You are doubting me, and I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. So he said, why are you doubting me, Zechariah? I am appearing to you. I stand in the presence of Almighty God day in, day out. His glory shines on me. Next slide, John. And behold... Shame on you for not believing me, but you're going to be moot. I am going to silence you, and you're not going to be able to speak until the day that you have your child, and all these things take place. Why? Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Next slide. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. So you can see this scene, right? So Zechariah's been in there a long time. Everybody out there saying, we may have to pull him out of there. He's probably got something that he didn't repent of when he went in, and we're not sure that he's going to make it out alive. But they're outside, and they're waiting on Zechariah to come out. Remember, they were outside praying while Zechariah was in there. Verse 22. At insult to injury, he comes out and he can't say a word. He can't talk. He was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained moot. So he couldn't really communicate other than than making signs to them. Next slide, John. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. So he stayed there and finished the shift. He couldn't talk anymore. He had just seen an angel. He's got great news, so in, inside his heart is joyous, but at the same time, he's not going to be able to even tell his wife in the way that he would like to. He's going to have to make some sort of poster, put it on paper, something to be able to tell her that they're going to have a child and oh can you imagine what her response is going to be to this 
Nonetheless, that's where he is. Verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, verse 25, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. So that reproach was her barrenness, right? And we talked about that early, early on. That the fact that she couldn't have children, people looked down upon her. And that's quite sad. It wasn't necessarily her fault. She hadn't done anything. But God was lifting her up, taking away her reproach among the people. He was answering their prayer pursuant to his sovereign will. So you see how they spent years and years praying for something that ultimately they didn't think would happen. And God was working his plan out to fulfill his future to bring someone to earth to prepare the way for the coming Messiah and at the same time answer their prayer, to take away her reproach, to take away the burden that she held within. But I think the most important thing that this speaks to me this morning as I look at this is their dedication that they had. That doesn't say they ever lost faith, they never got mad at God. She bore that burden accepted that burden, and they spent years and years and years praying, praying, praying. How many years did they spend praying, thinking, God's not hearing? Is my prayer ever going to be answered? And yet at a time when all logic gets thrown out the window, they're 80 years old, You think you're going to conceive a child and have a child at 80 years of age? No. That's when God shows up with a miracle and answered their prayer accordingly. So what I ask as we take away, don't ever stop with your prayers thinking, there's no way that God's going to do this at this time or there's no way that God can do this however he chooses to do it. Because he is a God of miracles, and he does answer our prayers. So be diligent and continue to pray, no matter how bleak the situation may be. You may have somebody that you're praying for that does not know God, and you're thinking, well, at this late date, how will they ever change their mind? God can change anyone in an instant. Don't lose hope. Continue to pray day after day after day. Be fervent because God hears and God answers. Amen? Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for this beautiful story as we open up the book of Luke and look at Zechariah and Elizabeth and the miracle that you performed in their lives, Lord, bringing John the Baptist to them, Father, in that he was filled with the Holy Spirit while in his mother's womb, Father, at a time when your Spirit did not fill or indwell people, Lord. It was miraculous in every way. And Father, we thank you that they give us an example of their prayers, that we know that it may take years for you to answer prayers, Lord, but we know that you hear them. We know that you're faithful and just and true to your word in every way. And let us be as diligent 
in our prayers as they were in theirs, Lord, and that through that you may be glorified. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. I want to stand and close with the...